with thy spirit. <laughs> just, you're making it sound like a cable news show. <laughs> Thank you, Father Glenn. All right. Uh, so tonight and over the next uh, few Wednesdays, I think, I was just checking with Father, Father Sean, I think we'll go f four weeks total, um, which should bring us to the week before Ascension. Uh, over the next few Wednesdays, we'll be talking about what our Christian lives have to do with um, our economic lives, or how to think Christianly about the economy. Um, and what I want to do this time is just to get us off the starting block, sort of raise the question, introduce the topic, um, discuss what it is, and lay out where we're headed. Um, and I have a handout that maybe someone can help me distribute. When Father Sean suggested that I do a series on Christian economics, my first reaction was that this could get us into a lot of trouble. And by us, I mean me. Uh, it, it, it seems like the kind of topic that could turn people who um, think well of me or at least are indifferent into reconsidering their, their opinion on the subject. Um, and that's because there are a lot of potential pitfalls, right? Um, are a lot of academics and pundits treat economics like it's just a debating point, um, like it's just an abstract idea. But of course, we all know that our economic lives includes everything we do to manage our resources and manage our time to provide for ourselves and for our family, for our children, um, to live a good life, um, to care for our parish. In that sense, um, it encompasses everything that we do to plan for the future, and it encompasses literally life and death. Um, so I want to be respectful of that. Um, I'm also mindful of the fact that when you start talking about economics, you also inevitably um, end up talking about politics. Um, and as a country, we do a pretty bad job of talking about politics when we disagree about politics. And even though our church at All Saints is, I think, quite uh, peaceful and harmonious, and we would probably do better about it than other churches, uh, we're not immune to those kind of dynamics. So I want to be careful about um, how we talk about these things. Um, if it sounds like I'm arguing for a political party or um, a political program or platform, that's not my intention. That's not what I'm going for. So the title for the series is What is Capitalism Good For? Catholic Social Teaching on Markets and Money. And there are uh, two ways of reading this question, what is capitalism good for? Um, the first one that I was thinking about when I was coming up with this title was the sort of rhetorical one. Uh, and I was thinking, had in mind that 1970 anti-Vietnam War protest song from Edwin Starr, you guys probably know it, War, what is it good for? And the backup singers sing, absolutely nothing. Right? So the, if the question's read in this way, as a rhetorical question that we already know the answer for, we could say, capitalism, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Or alternatively, it's pretty good. Maybe the best thing that we can come up with. Um, but 
and so we could divide ourselves into two different camps, pro-capitalists, anti-capitalists. Um, but there are a lot of pitfalls there, too. Right? Uh, for one thing, we come to this question with a lot of preconceived notions about what the word means. I mean, I think that's the biggest problem when we start talking about these kind of topics. One person means capitalism one way, another person means capitalism a different way. The history of the word, I think, is instructive. It's a pretty new word, capitalism. Um, it comes from the work of radical social critics from the early and mid-19th century, probably the most famous one, Karl Marx, who used the phrase the capitalist mode of production to describe the transformations of the economy in the 19th century. Um, and he didn't use the word capitalism, actually. Capitalism came later. It really only started circulating in the late 19th and early 20th century among people who opposed it. They said, all right, what is this new economic system? What, is this, what are these economic upheavals? What is this corporate capitalism? How do we, what, do we, what do we call this? They called it capitalism because for them it meant a society, an economic system that was dominated by one class, the capitalists. So it was always used in a very pejorative sense to, de to define uh, an economic system dominated by people who owned productive property. It was then, a few decades later, it started to use, be used by people who said that they were pro-capitalist. Uh, in the Cold War era, people who imagined themselves to be defenders of liberal democracy and free enterprise said, capitalism, I'm for it. Um, and now today, I mean, I think that any number of definitions could be used for the word capitalism. Um, I think it's, as I said, quite confusing to get into these kinds of debates because one person means one thing, another person means another thing. And now we have this kind of what my friend of mine calls adjectival capitalism. Right? People talk about financial capitalism or neoliberal capitalism, industrial capitalism. If you get, went to um, the Darden School, the McIntyre School at UVA, they talk a lot about stakeholder capitalism. Um, so so there's, there's confusion about the word. But I think even if we could get on the same page about what capitalism means, it wouldn't be all that useful to say this is good or this is bad. What I want us to do, what I'm trying to do is think with a better understanding, try to achieve more insight into what our economic system is um, and how to live um, in a Christian way within it. Um, so there's another way, though, of thinking about the, the question, what is capitalism good for? And it focuses less on the word capitalism and more on the word good. In other words, <coughs> what good things can capitalism or any economic system deliver? Now, the economy, am I speaking loud enough? Can you hear me back there, Jeremy? The economy produces a lot of goods and services. And we have a lot of sophisticated ways for measuring how, pr uh, how productive it is. There's gross domestic product, gross national product, the inflation rate, GDP per hour's worked, purchasing power, consu the consumer price index, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We have a lot of categories for measuring productivity. Um, we live in a society that is very, very good at measuring things. I think that that's in part, not entirely, but in part because we so desire to control things. Um, we're all accountants now, or at least we depend much more on accountants than, than people ever have before. But counting yields, I think you would all agree with me, counting yields and productivity and interest and doing cost-benefit analysis has a value, but it has a limited value. It only gets us so far. As Christians, we have other ways of thinking about what's good, right? So that, that suggests further questions that I'll just throw out here. Does our economic system contribute to justice? Does it help make us charitable? 
does it create conditions in which people can live the good life? Uh, these are qualitative questions, not really questions that can be measured all that well. Does it allow us and encourage us to live the life that God created, created us for? Now, even though as uh, every individual human life is unique, as Catholic Christians, we have some firm ideas about what the good life includes, right? To develop virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance. To receive the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. To love God and love one another. In other words, to be saints. And as Catholic Christians, we know that what is good is good only insofar as it participates in or reflects the goodness of God. that participates in and reflects the goodness of God who is the good. Uh, so this is true of what is good. It's also true of what is beautiful. It's also true of what is true. Um, I was thinking about the prayer in the family prayer section of the 1928 prayer book, that for joy in God's creation. It's on the handout, I think. It says, O heavenly Father who has filled the world with beauty, open we beseech thee our eyes to behold thy gracious hand in all thy works that rejoicing in thy whole creation, we may learn to serve thee with gladness for the sake of him by whom all things were made, thy son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In this prayer, we see um, a, a beautiful um, reflection of contemplation on the fact that we see creation participating in and reflecting God. Right? We rejoice and give thanks for that. And so what I want to do is suggest to you is that we might think about the question of this series in this way. How do we behold God's gracious hand in our society, specifically in our economy, to rejoice in that and to make our economic lives serve God with greater gladness? <clears throat> now, these are uh, tough questions, and obviously we're not going to answer them all tonight. Certainly, I don't think even in the next few weeks. Um, and now is actually probably a good time to pause and, and suggest, tell you wh where, where we're headed, what this is all about. Um, next week, uh, the plan is to talk about the relationship between the church and the world. Uh, that might seem kind of beside the point, but um, I don't think that it is. The way that the church has talked about economics and business life is not simply in terms of individualistic ethics. Like, here's a set of principles for being a good moral businessman, right? Um, instead... I mean, of course, individual ethics are important, but instead the focus is much more on um, the larger picture of, uh, in which we as individuals act as a part of the life of the church in the world and for the world. Um, how the life of God in the church extends into all of our social lives. So the relationship between the church and the world should be the basis for everything that comes after that. The next week will be on Christian anthropology. We can't understand, I would submit, we can't understand how to be good economic actors unless we know what human beings are and what they're for. Uh, and so this suggests some basic questions about what, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be happy? That last one's a really important one uh, because those questions are important for getting at uh, what, creature, what kind of creatures we are, but they're also important for considering economic calculus, how we reason about economics, right? Consumer capitalism is obsessed with the, the quest of making us happy in a certain certain definition of happiness. Um, so then the next, the final week, we'll get into more of the nuts and bolts of what economics means at the very basic level of a household. Uh, we'll talk about sol solidarity, subsidiarity, and the family. 
Um, and I think there's some interesting historical examples we can use to sort of think about what's possible. Um, in the remaining time that we have tonight, I want to talk briefly about two big things. What is Catholic social teaching? Why does it matter? And then why is it so difficult for us to use it? Why is it so difficult for us to think in this way? Why is it so strange or possibly offensive? Um, so what is Catholic social teaching in the Anglican tradition? The definition that I want to use is this. It's on the handout. Catholic social teaching is the application of the scriptures, doctrine, and the life of the church to society, economics, and politics, ordered to love, friendship, and the common good. Not very pithy, but... Um, Catholic social teaching is the application of the scriptures, doctrine, and the life of the church to society, economics, and politics. And those things are ordered or should be ordered toward love, towards friendship, and toward the common good. So what is Catholic social teaching? It's not a program. It's not a um, political platform. In fact, I think we'll see that Catholic social teaching does, um, tends to um, not fit into left versus right all that well. It doesn't fit into any kind of conventional political platform, at least as we see it currently. Uh, it, even though it does give us some basic principles, it's not simply a set of principles. Catholic social teaching is actually a, a tradition, an ongoing reflection on how we might order and arrange the whole of our lives toward God as our lives play out in families and workplaces, our communities and our politics. Um, obviously, the way that that works is going to look different depending on the family, depending on the business, depending on the community. Um, and so, you know, St. Irenaeus says that the glory of God is man fully alive, but how that works out in practice is going to look quite different in each case. It requires virtue, it requires wisdom and prudence to understand and apply the tradition in each case. But the basic goal is the same, to understand how human life can best be arranged to participate in and reflect the goodness, truth, and beauty of God. So Catholic social teaching is not like the Nicene Creed. It's not dogma. Um, God did not reveal to us, for example, what a just wage would be in e each circumstance. But it offers a way uh, for us to reason and think about what is just and what's good for our fellow man and for ourselves. Does that, does that make sense? Now, the sources of Catholic uh, social teaching are deep and wide. The list is on the handout. <clears throat> there are the, the scriptures beginning with Genesis and going through the New Testament. Genesis, for example, has a lot to say about what it means to be a human being. Um, it teaches us a lot of important things in the story of Adam and Eve and in other places about what sort of creature man is, what families are, um, <clears throat> what we're supposed to be doing on this earth. Another source is, is our liturgy, of course. Um, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, the rule of Prayer is the rule of belief. We say this often around here. The Book of Common Prayer is the book <coughs> of a whole life, uh, from baptism to confirmation to marriage or holy orders, from sickness to birth, uh, to times of famine and times of plenty, uh, to repentance and reconciliation to a good death. There's a lot in our prayer book that talks about uh, what it means to live together how to <coughs> and how we should think through that. It's also There's a lot in the liturgies of the Eastern and Western churches in which the prayer book's based that ha has a lot for us to think about. There's another source is also the experience of the church, particularly for us, the experience of parish life uh, and the wisdom that comes from that. But there's also rich historical examples in the experience of settlement houses. Um, these are 
houses that were built in the inner city slums in big cities like Chicago where a lot of priests and volunteers and others worked to teach and care for the poor. In monastic houses, um, another example, Anglo-Catholics historically have been very concerned about the poor and about working life and about craftsmanship and about the arts. Um, another source is the Fathers of the Church. There's a, a lot there. Some of it is a bit challenging um, to apply to our current day. Uh, there, there are some good, uh, there are some interesting um, volumes of sermons preached from St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil of Caesarea that are all about social justice and economic life. Some of it's quite harsh, uh, the way that these men preach to their people. Um, St. John Chrysostom said that not to, not to share our own riches with the poor is robbery of the poor. And there's a, there's a quote from um, St. Basil. He says, uh, the bread that you keep for yourself belongs to the hungry. To the naked belong the clothes that you hoard in your closet. To the barefooted belong the shoes that is gathering moth in your home. The indigent have a right to the money you hide in your coffers. And can you imagine hearing that on a Sunday morning? <clears throat> Uh, so the Fathers of the Church is a very important source for us. There's theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas, who's written, wrote at length about economic questions, including about usury and a number of other things. Uh, and uh, specifically, importantly, I think, for our, for our topic, what it means to be happy and what it means to be free. Um, and then closer to our own day, there's been a number of really excellent encyclicals from modern popes. Um, the Encyclicals are just letters that the Pope sends out to the bishops and the rest of the church about a topic of concern that's going on at that time. And the Pope started writing these social encyclicals in the late 19th century as industrial capitalism was kind of wreaking havoc in, in Europe and elsewhere. And the, the first one was by Pope Leo XIII uh, called Rerum Novarum, which was translated concerning new things, um, in which he argued both against the extremes of capitalism and against the state domination of socialism, argued in favor of a just wage and labor unions and a lot of other things. So that, that tradition has continued on. Pope Benedict XVI's uh, Charity and Truth is also a very important and helpful thing to read, in my opinion. And then um, there are these sort of interesting, sometimes peculiar movements of thought within, um, within Christianity in the last 100 years or so. The distributism, how many of you have heard of distributism? G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, wrote at length about, um, about an idea about how to transform the, the economy and make pr productive property more distributed among a wider group of people, make it more local and more humane. Um, there's interesting things there. Um, in the Anglo-Catholic tradition, there's a very strong tradition that's mostly forgotten these days of Christian socialism. Uh, they weren't Marxists. They were quite virulently anti-Marxist, but they thought of themselves as socialists nonetheless. Uh, and so these are, these are interesting historical and intellectual sources. So that's the general rundown of the sources of Catholic social teaching. I was, uh, my plan is to work on a, a list, a bibliography, that if people are interested, they could, they could get a copy of it. Uh, I'll distribute that at some point, um, maybe next Wednesday. Obviously, we're not going to get through all of these sources, um, but we'll refer to some of them as we go. But my main point tonight, and maybe the the problem that I've been thinking about most as I've been thinking about this topic uh, is that it is extremely difficult for us to recover these kinds of sources and use them in a, the modern world today. And uh, I'm curious why that's the case. They make us uncomfortable. 
or if they don't always make us uncomfortable, they definitely would make many of our neighbors and friends uncomfortable, right? Our secular neighbors and friends, and even many of our Christian neighbors and friends. And why is that the case? So there's two, two big objections uh, that I want to talk about for the rest of the time here. Two big objections that make us uh, doubt that thinking along these lines is really worth the trouble, and that in fact it might be kind of dangerous. Um, and the, the first one that feels the most familiar to me goes something like this. What does this have to do with the gospel? Right. What does this have to do with salvation? None of this seems to have anything to do with worship or liturgy. Um, it certainly doesn't seem to have anything to do with evangelism or spreading the gospel. Isn't this not bringing something alien and foreign to the gospel into the life of the church? There's also the question of when you start talking about hoarding your money away uh, and not giving to the poor, um, the objection or the question might be, are you making what we buy or how we use our property a matter of salvation? Um, these objections feel very familiar to me. I don't know about you. <clears throat> the first thing I would say is that it is actually a distinct possibility that what we do with our economic resources could be an issue of salvation. Um, the prophets of the Old Testament again and again single out defrauding the laborer and withholding from the poor as particularly pernicious sins. In the New Testament, St. James has very harsh things to say about the wealthy who pile up their riches and says specifically that wages kept back from the hired laborers cry out to God and enters, quote, into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That seems like a very perilous thing. There's also this issue of uh, individual sins versus social sins. Uh, conservatives are pretty good about talking about individual moral issues, individual ethics. Um, and liberals tend to focus much more on social ethics, social problems. You go to a liberal mainline church on a Sunday morning, you know, it's usually not a big surprise that you would hear something about climate change, for example, right? Um, and so there's this bifurcation of the individual and the social. But I think that this sort of misses the point. The Bible says that our ethical imaginations do not originate with who we are as individuals. They also don't originate with who we are as a society or in our collective. They um, originate in the life of Christ, in our identity in Christ, and uh, which is both social and individual. Our risen Lord says that <clears throat> all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he is the Lord over our rulers, our families, our societies, our economies. Far more important than asking what kind of economic behavior is it okay for us to engage in is the question, what should our economic institutions and our ways of reasoning about money look like in the kingdom of God? Now, the objection that this kind of thing doesn't have anything immediately to do with salvation or with the church is probably the most common Christian objection. Um, and what I would submit to you is that this is a kind of uh, Christian secularism that imagines that the Christian life is only or almost only about what happens to us when we die, that might wonder if the created world is all that good or a very good idea, that is uncomfortable with flesh and blood, that separates grace from nature, American religion, by and large, over the last 250 years, has tended to separate God from the world. It sets up a dualism that the, the older Christian tradition chafes against. Uh, there's a <coughs> Roman Catholic theologian named David Schindler who I've been reading a lot of in the last few days. and 
he, he wrote this question, why should we be surprised if Americans increasingly experience Christianity as alien to their secular experience when their Christianity has already defined itself as alien to their secular experience? I saw an interview uh, recently with the CEO of a credit card company, the credit card company Visa, and the CEO is apparently a, a pretty devout Roman Catholic. And um, <clears throat> there's this controversy about whether Visa would continue doing business with some very popular um, online websites that have very bad reputations about the kind of business they do. I won't mention what it is, but it's euphemistically called the adult entertainment industry. And, there's, uh, and when asked if he had a problem basically funding this, um, given the fact that he's a Catholic, and a lot of the other sort of worst things that happen on these websites, the CEO of Visa said, I run a company, so I leave my personal feelings to myself. We are not moral arbiters. And so what I take the Visa CEO saying in effect is that his Catholic faith belongs to a category called personal, personal feelings, and that to make them anything more than that, to make them more public, uh, would be to make him into a kind of moral arbiter. Right? And I want to suggest that this is a profoundly distorted way of thinking about things. Um, it's a kind of, it's a way of imagining that the world of faith is separate from the ordinary world of our experience. The, the city of God, the life of God, is for the world. It is not against the world. It is not separate from the world. It's a, uh, it's a process that the prophet Isaiah imagines in this way. He, he writes, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Uh, this is the working out of the ontological reality of the incarnation, the making of a new creation, and the extension of, the sal of salvation accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ into the entire cosmos, which I take to encompass um, even the Visa credit card company. So when the when the modern American, within the modern American Christian world, there's usually this bifurcation between the sacred and the secular. There's also a bifurcation between the individual and the social. Uh, but the redemption that God has accomplished and is accomplishing in Christ is not just for individuals, but also for societies, for the families, the communities, the churches, the businesses that we find ourselves a part of, even before we are born. Uh, St. Augustine famously said in the Confessions, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. But it's also true that our societies and our communities are restless until they rest in God. So that's the Christian objection. The second objection to the idea of uh, Christian economics and to the idea of a Christian society altogether is the modern um, secular liberal one. And it goes something like this. Shouldn't religion be private? Right? This is the air that we breathe, that the Christian faith is one among many religions, that religion is something that you do in private, or it's something you can do with other people if you'd like. Um, but it's not something that you bring into the workplace or into the school or into politics. And that's because we live in a pluralist society and we don't agree on what's ultimately good or what the good life is. So we have to divide things into private spheres of personal commitment and public spheres where basically we promise not to harm one another. Right? Um, we certainly don't want to admit the possibility that we would harm one another, one another over the basic meaning of what life is for. And so um, I think that's, um, that's, much, that's more the case for the economy than probably any other part of life. We tend to think of the economy as something that's separate, uh, that its own thing, it's just business, is the kind of phrases that we use. 
The Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor has argued that in modern times, economic life was the first part of society that people imagined was completely independent from all political and religious considerations. That's, um, that is a new event, a new fact of modernity. Um, we tend to think of the economic system like as a force of nature and that economics is a pure and objective science. So modern Enlightenment liberalism, has, which has shaped our political, economic, and religious lives, divides things up. It specializes knowledge. It privatizes religion. It makes society a, uh, a, kind of a set of, sort of social contracts where the only real agent left is the individual. It makes the church just another social association. Um, it can't commit to what is actually good. Um, but this privatization of religion, this privatization of the good, is something that, of course, does not fit with how the church has understood itself uh, for thousands of years. It certainly does not fit with the reality of our Lord's authority in heaven and earth. Um, it might be tempting to think of the church as just another association, not entirely unlike the, the university or a major corporation or a government or a club, among others, but it is not. All our, all our other uh, social organizations can only be placed, I would argue, and properly understood in relation to the church. Uh, one political theologian has put it this way, that the history of the church is not a special subset within a larger narrative of what is happening in the world. Instead, all of history, in a certain sense, is a part of church history. We, we have that backwards often. Um, so <coughs> the, the Christian faith teaches a number of things that go contrary to this approach to, to social life. There are three that I want to highlight here. Uh, three ways of understanding ourselves and the world. Uh, these are certainly not value neutral. These are about as ultimate as it gets. Um, and they chafe against secular liberalism. But they have, I would say, enormous bearing on, on economic life, generally, generally speaking. <clears throat> the first thing that the Christian, uh, well, one of the things the Christian faith teaches us is that it tells us what it means to be a human being, right? The incarnation of Christ did not only reveal God to be man, it also revealed to us what it means to be a man. Um, it also brings to light what we are called to be, to be like Christ. Uh, and when we understand that calling, we come to know what the collect for peace that morning prayer means when it says that service to God is perfect freedom. Um, we'll, we'll get into this more when we talk about freedom and happiness, but the, the way that we tend to think about freedom and happiness within, within a consumer capitalist society is that it's, uh, it really boils down to having the maximal number of choices um, and maximal number of experiences and living the longest possible life. Um, it's more about quantity than it is about anything else. Um, but the Christian faith does not get along well with that view of the world. The second um, thing that I wanted to highlight is, is the fact that life is a gift. Um, modern economics is premised on the notion of scarcity. And that, that's a, a real thing. It's not the most fundamental thing about life. Life is not scarce, it is an overflowing gift of God. Another way of saying this is just what Psalm 100 says in the prayer book. 
Be sure that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. There's this, um, there's this quote from uh, David Schindler again. That's, uh, that's on the handout um, that I wanted to call your attention to. He says, uh, for Christians, economic life, like all other aspects of life, must be formed, uh, formed from within the liberation affected by God and in Jesus Christ. The basic form for a Christian's approach to economic life is given in the love archetypically revealed in Jesus and in turn through Mary, and thus through the Marian fiat and magnificat. The, the fiat that Mary says, of course, to the angel Gabriel is, let it be unto me according to thy word. And Schindler explains that the, the fiat ex, uh, reveals our creaturely dependence on God. It models a receptivity to the, to the reality that life is a gift um, and to God himself. Um, and when we know that all things are a gift, uh, that leads to two things. It leads to, it leads to praise, the Magnificat praising God, but also leads to service, um, all, under the, all with an attitude of gratitude and wonder. So life is a gift. Life is, um, it, t it teaches us what human beings are for, that life is a gift. And the last thing is that this created order is sacramental. Um, what that means is that the, that's my third point, is that the created order is sacramental. The natural world, even the artificial world, the things that we make, the furniture in this room, points to and, and signifies what is higher. Um, when we set our minds on the things that are above, we do not and we should not regard the material, temporal, sensible things as meaningless or evil. Um, we should situate those earthly things in relation to what is higher and to, and to God. Uh, there's a final quote here from the Russian Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann who, uh, in his language, really explicitly ties, uh, ties this and, and relates it to how we understand value. He says, when we see the world as an end in itself, everything becomes itself a value and consequently loses all value because only in God, does, um, only in God uh, is found the meaning, the value of everything. And the world is only meaningful when it is a sacrament of God's presence. So things treated merely as things in themselves destroy themselves because only in God have they any life. The world of nature cut off from the source of life is a dying world, he says. Um, and what I take, I, I take this to be meaningful and significant because it helps us understand what, what, true, what true value is. Right? Um, wealth, true wealth is the life that comes from God, not uh, GDP or productivity. Though those things are obviously important uh, I'm going to close with this, um, and then we can discuss or not. Um, since, since Catholic social teaching, since um, thinking Christianly about economics is not a political program, it's not a rule book that you follow this step and this step and this step, because it really depends upon prudence and wisdom, uh, that it depends on having the the virtue to know what is what is good and right in a given situation, and every situation is a little bit different, it's, uh, it requires formation. It requires that we are the kind of people who can think Christianly ourselves. It's the, the formation of the church, the sacraments, the prayer life of the church that gives us the ability to think well 
about what it means to be a human being, about the fact that life is a gift and the created order is sacramental. And it's that formation that helps us move beyond uh, the divisions of sacred and secular, public and private, in order to imagine how our economic lives can, be more, uh, can more fully participate and reflect the life of God. I'm going to close with that. This is, um, uh, I think, I'm hoping that as we go along, we'll get into more specifically, directly economic kind of things. But uh, I feel like this is an important introduction to thinking Christianly about.